0: Book four, chapter twenty eight of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book four, chapter twenty eight. In half an hour from the time mr Gray's door closed upon him, Elsmere had caught a convenient cross country train, and had left the Oxford towers and spires, the shrunken summer Isis, and the flat, hot river meadows far behind him. He meant to stay at Merton, as we know, for the night. Now his one thought was to get back to Catherine. The urgency of Mr. Grey's words was upon him, and Love had a miserable pang that it should have needed to be urged. By eight o'clock he was again at Churton. There were no carriages waiting at the little station, but the thought of the walk across the darkening common through the August moonrise had been a refreshment to him in the heat and crowd of the train. He hurried through the small town, where the streets were full of summer idlers, and the lamps were twinkling in the still balmy air, along a dusty stretch of road, leaving man and his dwellings farther and farther to the rear of him, till at last he emerged on a boundless tract of common, and struck to the right into a cart-track leading to Muirwell. He was on the top of a high sandy ridge, looking west and north, over a wide evening world of heather and wood and hill. To the right, far ahead, across the misty lower grounds into which he was soon to plunge, rose the woods of Murwell, black and massive in the twilight distance. To the left, but on a nearer plain, the undulating common stretching downwards from where he stood, rose suddenly towards a height crowned with a group of gaunt and jagged firs, landmarks for all the plain, of which every ghostly bough and crest was now sharply outlined against a luminous sky. For the white heaven in front of him was still delicately glowing in all its underparts with soft harmonies of dusky red or blue, while in its higher zone the same tract of sky was closely covered with the finest network of pearl-white cloud, suffused at the moment with a silver radiance so intense that a spectator might almost have dreamed the moon had forgotten its familiar place of rising and was about to mount into a startled, expectant west. Not a light in all the wide expanse, and for a while not a sound of human life save the beat of Robert's step, or the occasional tap of his stick against the pebbles of the road. Presently he reached the edge of the ridge whence the rough track he was following sank sharply to the lower levels. Here was a marvellous point of view, and the rector stood a moment beside a bare, weather-blasted fir, a ghostly shadow thrown behind him. All around the gorse and heather seemed still radiating light, as though the air had been so drenched in sunshine that even long after the sun had vanished the invading darkness found itself still unable to win firm possession of earth and sky. Every little stone in the sandy road was still weirdly visible. The colour of the heather, now in lavish bloom, could be felt, though hardly seen. Before him melted line after line of woodland, broken by hollow after hollow, filled with vaporous wreaths of mist. About him were the sounds of a wild nature. The air was resonant with the purring of the night-jars, and every now and then he caught the loud clap of their wings as they swayed unsteadily through the firs and bracken. Overhead a trio of wild ducks flew across from pond to pond, their hoarse cry descending through the darkness. The partridges on the hill called to each other, and certain sharp sounds betrayed to the solitary listener the presence of a flock of swans on a neighbouring pool. The rector, felt himself alone on a wide earth. It was almost with a start of pleasure that he caught at last the barking of dogs on a few distant farms, or the dim, thunderous rush of a train through the wide wooded landscape beyond the heath. Behind that frowning mass of wood lay the rectory. The lights must be lit in the little drawing-room, Catherine must be sitting by the lamp, her fine head bent over book or work, grieving for him, perhaps, her anxious, expectant heart going out to him through the dark. He thinks of the village lying wrapped in the peace of the August night, the lamp-rays from shop-front or casement streaming out on to the green. He thinks of his child, of his dead mother, feeling heavy and bitter within him all the time the message of separation and exile. But his mood was no longer one of mere dread, of helpless pain, of miserable self-scorn. Contact with Henry Gray had brought him that rekindling of the flame of conscience, that medicinal stirring of the soul's waters which is the most precious boon that man can give to man. In that sense which attaches to every successive resurrection of our best life from the shades of despair or selfishness, he had, that day, almost that hour, been born again. He was no longer filled mainly with a sense of personal failure, with scorn for his own blundering impetuous temper, so lacking in prescience and in balance, or in respect to his wife with such an anguished impotent remorse. He was nerved and braced. Whatever oscillations the mind might go through in its search for another equilibrium, to-night there was a moment of calm. The earth to him was once more full of God, existence full of value. The things I have always loved, I love still, he had said to Mr. Gray. And in this healing darkness it was as if the old loves, the old familiar images of thought, returned to him new clad, re-entering the desolate heart in a white-winged procession of consolation. On the heath beside him the Christ stood once more, and as the disciple felt the sacred presence, he could bear for the first time to let the chafing, pent-up current of love flow into the new channels, so painfully prepared for it by the toil of thought. Either God or an impostor. What scorn the heart the intellect threw on the alternative! not in the dress of speculations which represent the product of long-past, long-superseded looms of human thought, but in the guise of common manhood, laden like his fellows with the pathetic weight of human weakness and human ignorance, the master moves towards him. "'Like you, my son, I struggled and I prayed. Like you, I had my days of doubt and nights of wrestling. I had my dreams, my delusions, with my fellows. I was weak, I suffered, I died.' But God was with me, and the courage, the patience, the love He gave to me, the scenes of the poor human life He inspired, have become by His will the world's eternal lesson, man's primer of divine things, hung high in the eyes of all, simple and wise, that all may see and all may learn. Take it to your heart again, that life, that pain of mine. Use it to new ends, apprehend it in new ways but knowledge shall not take it from you, and love, instead of weakening or forgetting, if it be but faithful, shall find ever-fresh power of realising and renewing itself." So said the vision, and carrying the passion of it deep in his heart, the rector went his way, down the long stony hill, past the solitary farm amid the trees at the foot of it, across the grassy common beyond, with its sentinel clumps of beeches past an ethereal string of tiny lakes just touched by the moonrise beside some of the first cottages of mule, up the hill with pulse beating and step quickening, and round into the stretch of road leading to his own gate. As soon as he had passed the screen made by the shrubs on the lawn, he saw it all as he had seen it in his waking dream on the common. The lamplight, the open windows, the white muslin curtains swaying a little in the soft evening air and Catherine's figure seen dimly through them. The noise of the gate, however, of the steps on the drive, had startled her. He saw her rise quickly from her low chair, put some work down beside her, and move in haste to the window. "'Robert!' she cried in amazement. "'Yes,' he answered, still some yards from her, his voice coming strangely to her out of the moonlit darkness. "'I did my errand early. I found I could get back, and here I am.' She flew to the door opened it, and felt herself caught in his arms. "'Robert, you're quite damp,' she said, fluttering and shrinking, for all her sweet habitual gravity of manner. Was it the passion of that yearning embrace? "'Have you walked?' "'Yes. It's the dew on the common, I suppose. The grass was drenched.' "'Will you have some food? They can bring back the supper directly.' "'I don't want any food now,' he said, hanging up his hat. "'I got some lunch in town, and a cup of soup at Reading coming back.' Perhaps you will give me some tea soon. Not yet. He came up to her, pushing back the thick, disordered locks of hair from his eyes with one hand, the other held out to her. As he came under the light of the hall lamp, she was so startled by the grey pallor of the face that she caught hold of his outstretched hand with both hers. What she said he never knew. Her look was enough. He put his arm round her, and as he opened the drawing-room door, holding her pressed against him, She felt the desperate agitation in him, penetrating, beating against an almost iron self-control of manner. He shut the door behind him. "'Robert, dear Robert,' she said, clinging to him, "'there is bad news. Tell me—there is something to tell me. What is it? What is it?' It was almost like a child's wail. His brow contracted still more painfully. "'My darling,' he said, "'my darling, my dear, dear wife.' and he bent his head down to her as she lay against his breast, kissing her hair with a passion of pity, of remorse, of tenderness, which seemed to rend his whole nature. "'Tell me, tell me, Robert!' He guided her gently across the room, past the sofa over which her work lay scattered, past the flower-table now a many-coloured mass of roses which was her especial pride, past the remains of a brick castle which delighted Mary's wandering eyes and mischievous fingers an hour or two before to a low chair by the open window, looking on the wide, moonlit expanse of Cornfield. He put her into it, walked to the window on the other side of the room, shut it, and drew down the blind. Then he went back to her, and sank down beside her, kneeling, her hands in his. "'My dear wife, you have loved me. You do love me?' She could not answer. She could only press his hands with her cold fingers, with a look and gesture that implored him to speak. "'Catherine,' he said, still kneeling before her, "'you remember that night you came down to me in the study, the night I told you I was in trouble and you could not help me? Did you guess, from what I said, what the trouble was?' "'Yes,' she answered, trembling. "'Yes, I did, Robert. I thought you were depressed—troubled—about religion. "'And I know—' he said with an outburst of feeling, kissing her hands as they lay in his. "'I know very well that you went upstairs and prayed for me, my white-souled angel.' But Catherine, the trouble grew. It got blacker and blacker. You were there beside me. You could not help me. I dared not tell you about it. I could only struggle on alone, so terribly alone sometimes. And now I'm beaten. Beaten. "'And I come to you to ask you to help me in the only thing that remains to me.' help me, Catherine, to be an honest man, to follow conscience, to say and do the truth.' "'Robert,' she said piteously, deadly pale, "'I don't understand.' "'Oh, my poor darling!' he cried with a kind of moan of pity and misery. Then, still holding her, he said, with strong deliberate emphasis, looking into the grey-blue eyes, the quivering face so full of austerity and delicacy, For six or seven months, Catherine—really, for much longer, though I never knew it—I have been fighting with doubt—doubt of Orthodox Christianity, doubt of what the Church teaches, of what I have to say and preach every Sunday. First it crept on me. I knew not how. Then the weight grew heavier, and I began to struggle with it. I felt I must struggle with it. Many men, I suppose, in my position would have trampled on their doubts would have regarded them as sin in themselves, would have felt it their duty to ignore them as much as possible, trusting to time and God's help. I could not ignore them. The thought of questioning the most sacred beliefs that you and I— and his voice faltered a moment— held in common was misery to me. On the other hand, I knew myself. I knew that I could no more go on living to any purpose, with the whole region of the mind shut up, as it were— barred away from the rest of me, that I could go on living with a secret between myself and you. I could not hold my faith by a mere tenure of tyranny and fear. Faith that is not free, that is not the faith of the whole creature, body, soul, and intellect, seemed to me a faith worthless, both to God and man. Catherine looked at him, stupefied. The world seemed to be turning round her infinitely more terrible than his actual words, was the accent running through words and tone and gesture, the accent of irreparableness, as of something dismally done and finished. What did it all mean? For what had he brought her there? She sat stunned, realising with awful force the feebleness, the inadequacy of her own fears. He, meanwhile, had paused a moment, meeting her gaze with those yearning, sunken eyes. Then he went on, his voice changing a little. "'But if I had wished it ever so much, I could not have helped myself. The process, so to speak, had gone too far by the time I knew where I was. I think the change must have begun before the mile-end time. Looking back, I see the foundations were laid in, in the work of last winter.' She shivered. He stooped and kissed her hands again passionately. "'Am I poisoning even the memory of our past for you?' he cried. Then restraining himself at once, he hurried on again. "'After Mile End you remember I began to see much of the Squire. My wife don't look at me so. It was not his doing, in any true sense. I'm not such a weak shuttlecock as that. But being where I was before our intimacy began, his influence hastened everything. I don't wish to minimise it. I was not made to stand alone." And again that bitter, perplexed, half-scornful sense of his own pliancy at the hands of circumstances, compared with the rigidity of other men descended upon him. Catherine made a faint movement, as though to draw her hands away. "'Was it well?' she said, in a voice which sounded like a harsh echo of her own. "'Was it right for a clergyman to discuss sacred things with such a man?' he let her hands go, guided for the moment by a delicate imperious instinct which bade him appeal to something else than love. Rising, he sat down opposite to her on the low window-seat, while she sank back into her chair, her fingers clinging to the arm of it, the lamplight far behind deepening all the shadows of the face, the hollows in the cheeks, the line of experience and will about the mouth. The stupor in which she had just listened to him was beginning to break up. Wild forces of condemnation and resistance were rising in her, and he knew it. He knew, too, that as yet she only half realised the situation, and that blow after blow still remained to him to deal. Was it right that I should discuss religious matters with the squire? he repeated, his face resting on his hands. What are religious matters, Catherine, and what are not? Then, still controlling himself rigidly, his eyes fixed on the shadowy face of his wife, his ear catching her quick, uneven breath. He went once more through the dismal history of the last few months, dwelling on his state of thought before the intimacy with Mr. Wendover began, on his first attempts to escape the squire's influence, on his gradual, pitiful surrender. Then he told the story of the last memorable walk before the squire's journey, of the moment in the study afterwards, and of the months of feverish reading and wrestling which had followed. Halfway through it, a new despair seized him. What was the good of all he was saying? He was speaking a language she did not really understand. What were all these critical and literary considerations to her? The rigidity of her silence showed him that her sympathy was not with him, that in comparison with the vibrating protest of her own passionate faith, which must be now ringing through her, Whatever he could urge must seem to her the merest culpable trifling with the soul's awful destinies. In an instant of tumultuous speech, he could not convey to her the temper and results of his own complex training. And on that training, as he very well knew, depended the piercing, convincing force of all that he was saying. There were gulfs between them, gulfs which, as it seemed to him in a miserable insight, could never be bridged again. Oh, the frightful separateness of experience!" Still he struggled on. He brought the story down to the conversation at the hall, described, in broken words of fire and pain, the moment of spiritual wreck which had come upon him in the August Lane, his night of struggle, his resolve to go to Mr. Gray. And all through he was not so much narrating as pleading a cause, and that not his own, but Love's. Love was at the bar and it was for love that the eloquent voice, the pale, varying face, were really pleading through all the long story of intellectual change. At the mention of Mr. Gray Catherine grew restless. She sat up suddenly with a cry of bitterness. "'Robert, why did you go away from me? It was cruel. I should have known first. He had no right—no right!' She clasped her hands round her knees, her beautiful mouth set and stern. The moon had been sailing westward all this time, and as Catherine bent forward the yellow light caught her face and brought out the haggard change in it. He held out his hands to her with a low groan, helpless against her reproach, her jealousy. He dared not speak of what Mr. Gray had done for him, of the tenderness of his counsel towards her, preciously. He felt that everything he could say would but torture the wounded heart still more. But she did not notice the outstretched hands. She covered her face in silence a moment, as though trying to see her way more clearly through the mazes of disaster, and he waited. At last she looked up. "'I cannot follow all you have been saying,' she said, almost harshly. "'I know so little of books. I cannot give them the place you do. You say you have convinced yourself the Gospels are like other books, full of mistakes, and credulous, like the people of the time.' And therefore, you can't take what they say as you used to take it. But what did it all quite mean? Oh, I am not clever. I cannot see my way clear from thing to thing as you do. If there are mistakes, does it matter so, so terribly to you? And she faltered. Do you think nothing is true because something may be false? Did not, did not Jesus still live and die and rise again? Can you doubt? Do you doubt that he rose, that he is God, that he is in heaven, that we shall see him?" She threw an intensity into every word, which made the short, breathless questions thrill through him, through the nature saturated and steeped as hers was in Christian association, with a bitter, accusing force. But he did not flinch from them. "'I can believe no longer in an incarnation and resurrection.' he said clearly, but with a resolute plainness. Christ is risen in our hearts in the Christian life of charity. Miracle is a natural product of human feeling and imagination. And God was in Jesus, pre-eminently, as he is in all great souls, but not otherwise, not otherwise in kind than he is in me or you. His voice dropped to a whisper. She grew paler and paler. "'So to you,' she said presently, in the same strange, altered voice. "'My father, when I saw that light on his face before he died, when I heard him cry, "'Master, I come,' was dying, deceived, deluded. "'Perhaps even,' and she trembled, "'you think it ends here, our life, our love?' It was agony to him to see her driving herself through this piteous catechism. The lantern of memory flashed a moment on to the immortal picture of Faust and Margaret. Was it not only that winter they had read the scene together? Forcibly he possessed himself once more of those closely locked hands, pressing their coldness on to his own burning eyes and forehead in hopeless silence. "'Do you, Robert?' she repeated insistently. "'I know nothing,' he said, his eyes still hidden. "'I know nothing. But I trust God with all that is dearest in me, with our love, with the soul that is his breath, his work in us." The pressure of her despair seemed to be wringing his own faith out of him, forcing into definiteness things and thoughts that had been lying in an accepted, even a welcomed obscurity. She tried again to draw her hands away, but he would not let them go. "'And the end of it all, Robert?' she said. "'The end of it?' Never did he forget the note of that question, the desolation of it, the indefinable change of accent. It drove him into a harsh abruptness of reply. The end of it, so far, must be, if I remain an honest man, that I must give up my living, that I must cease to be a minister of the Church of England. What the course of our life after that shall be is in your hands, absolutely. She caught her breath painfully. His heart was breaking for her and yet there was something in her manner now which kept down caresses, and repressed all words. Suddenly, however, as he sat there mutely watching her, he found her at his knees, her dear arms around him, her face against his breast. "'Robert, my husband, my darling, it cannot be! It is a madness, a delusion! God is trying you, and me! You cannot be planning so to desert him, so to deny Christ!' you cannot, my husband. Come away with me, away from books and work, into some quiet place where he can make himself heard. You are overdone, overdriven. Do nothing now, say nothing, except to me. Be patient a little, and he will give you back himself. What can books and arguments matter to you or me? Have we not known and felt him as he is? Have we not, Robert? Come, she pushed herself backwards, smiling at him with an exquisite tenderness. The tears were streaming down her cheeks. They were wet on his own. Another moment and Robert would have lost the only clue which remained to him through the mists of this bewildering world. He would have yielded again, as he had many times yielded before, for infinitely less reason, to the urgent pressure of another's individuality, and having jeopardized love for truth, he would now have murdered, or tried to murder, in himself, the sense of truth for love. But he did neither. Holding her close pressed against him, he said, in breaks of intense speech, "'If you wish, Catherine, I will wait. I will wait till you bid me speak, but I warn you, there is something dead in me, something gone and broken. It can never live again, except in forms which now it would only pain you more to think of.' It is not that I think differently of this point or that point, but of life and religion altogether. I see God's purposes in quite other proportions, as it were. Christianity seems to me something small and local. Behind it, around it, including it, I see the great drama of the world sweeping on, led by God, from change to change, from act to act. It is not that Christianity is false, but that it is only an imperfect human reflection of a part of truth. Truth has never been, can never be, contained in any one creed or system." She heard. But through her exhaustion, through the bitter sinking of hope, she only half understood. Only she realized that she and he were alike helpless, both struggling in the grip of some force outside themselves, inexorable, ineluctable. Robert felt her arms relaxing, felt the dead weight of her form against him. He raised her to her feet, he half carried her to the door, and on to the stairs. She was nearly fainting, but her will held it at bay. He threw open the door of their room, led her in, lifted her, unresisting, onto the bed. Then her head fell to one side, and her lips grew ashen. In an instant or two he had done for her all that his medical knowledge could suggest with rapid, decided hands. She was not quite unconscious. She drew up round her, as though with a strong, vague sense of chill, the shawl he laid over her, and gradually the slightest shade of colour came back to her lips. But as soon as she opened her eyes and met those of Robert fixed upon her, the heavy lids dropped again. "'Would you rather be alone?' he said to her, kneeling beside her. She made a faint affirmative movement of the head, and the cold hand he'd been chafing tried feebly to withdraw itself. He rose at once, and stood a moment beside her, looking down at her. Then he went. End of Book 4, Chapter 28